Chapter Sixteen of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Sixteen, This World and the Other One. It was with a very satisfied air that Mrs. Remington surveyed her new home, the handsome house in Kensett Square. All was in perfect order now after six weeks' hard work. From the daintily appointed chambers and elegant parlor to the kitchen, a very model of a kitchen, Mattie thought, with its bright oilcloth, convenient closets, and shining new range set in red brick. How different it all was from the place at Belleville, this house, one of many in a block of brownstone fronts, its white steps, with iron railing and front door precisely like those on either side of it. It was a dignified, elegant home and yet the advantages were not all in favor of the city house. Mattie recollected with a sigh, as she stood looking out a window that opened into an alley, while another had for its prospect a blank brick wall. She could not at the moment but recall the sunny windows of the Belleville Parsonage, overlooking the wide lawn, and beyond, as far as the eye could reach, meadow, river, and hill. She sighed again, as we all do, when we suddenly wake to find that, what we have held cheaply has become infinitely precious when once it has vanished. One cannot have everything at once, philosophically said the minister's wife to herself, and then eased that first real pang of regret by taking another look at her handsome rooms. They were much more handsome than the young couple had planned, but it all came about by degrees. The Belleville parlor was a square room, so its carpet did not fit the long double parlors of the city house. Mrs. Chilton advised them to purchase a velvet carpet, as there were fine bargains in that line just then, and they had followed her advice. Once bought, this soft, rich carpet proved a tyrant, demanding portieres and lace curtains and easy chairs that would not be out of harmony with its elegance. And then Mrs. Chilton, who sometimes accompanied them on their shopping excursions, was always whispering like an evil spirit in Mattie's ear, "'This set is much more desirable,' There is a style about this that the other has not. And really, the cost is but a trifle more. As the bills increased, these two young people began to look serious over the amount they had laid out. A salary of $3,000 had seemed such an enormous sum, compared with that paltry thousand at Belleville, that they had laid plans to give liberally and lay up a nice sum each year. But here it was melting like snow before they had received it. There is this to be said, Mattie remarked, as they sat looking over the bills. The thing is done for some time. We shall not find it necessary to make such an outlay very soon again, if, indeed, this was necessary, she added, her face clouding. I suppose, John said, perplexedly, we must live somewhat within the style of our people, or they would not be pleased. And yet does it not seem absurd, said Mattie, for our parlors to bear even a slight resemblance to Mrs. Chilton's, when you compare our incomes? I like nice things, but sometimes it troubles me. Where are we to draw the line? This is not at all the simplicity we had meant to maintain in our style of living, John. Regrets are vain, said John, gathering up the bills and thrusting them into the secretary. One thing is certain. I have not time to indulge them. We did what we thought was for the best. It is not good to be continually recasting one's decision— the only way is to act in harmony with conscience at the time, and then not go back over the past too much. There is not time in this busy world. With that he hurried off to a committee meeting, but Mattie still sat and thought, 
weighing motives and actions, conscious that many times during the last few weeks, when she had stood irresolute before a curtain or table-scarf, conscience had protested while she had persisted, and paid, it had ended by her paying, far more for an article than she had proposed, because the lace was finer, the pattern more graceful, or the particular shade of color exactly suited her taste. She had decided against conscience in a way that John, with no feminine love of fine lace and exquisite tints, would find it hard to comprehend. Men do not know about our temptations, she told herself. They wholesale matters with conscience, and march along comfortably, while women deal in pretty retail business. We are obliged to stop and parley about a flower or a feather or a bit of lace till we are quite worn out and perplexed. What a strange, exacting tyrant was this conscience! How sensitive! How quick to take affront and leave one to adjust alone the delicate balance between right and wrong! Perhaps sitting there alone, searching herself, convicting and condemning, Mrs. Remington did quite as profitable work for herself and those she was to influence as John did at his meeting. If life at Belleville had been busy, what should be said of this new life, where neither found scarcely a minute to call his own? Such a broad field as it was, this corner of the vineyard, with many of its members businessmen in hot pursuit of wealth, others struggling to keep one hand in Christ and the other in that of the world, and its young people chasing pleasure as children do butterflies. An eager, bustling, hurrying throng it was, with ears stopped and eyes intent on their different goals, only the faithful few to be found in every church to help stem the tide of worldliness. Well might the young minister choose for his text, Who is sufficient for these things? Mattie found her work among the young people. The former minister's wife had been elderly and reserved, performing her round of duties in a solemn, punctilious manner utterly devoid of sympathy with all who had not attained to years and wisdom. To those who had been accustomed to her for years, she served as the type for all ministers' wives. Mrs. Remington was a surprise, with her youth and brightness and winning manner, which charmed the hearts of young and old alike. It seemed a pity, some of them thought, that one no older than themselves, and so fitted to shine in society should be, by her position, debarred from any of its pleasures, but what was marvelous, to them she seemed just as much absorbed in her world as they in theirs. In fact, she spoke with more enthusiasm of prayer meetings and church work than many of them, pleasure-surfeited creatures, could possibly feel for their gaieties. She might as well be a nun, remarked a society man, as a group of young people were discussing the new minister and his wife one evening. It's too bad to condemn her to such a life. She is so beautiful and charming— any fossil of a woman could fill her place, lead missionary meetings, and visit the sick. She ought not to be wasted in that way. She doesn't seem to need your pity in the least, a sharp-tongued young lady replied. She is the happiest person among us all, and you must remember she chose her position. She probably had the opportunity to look higher and marry a man who would take her to hops and theaters and operas every night of the week. She preferred missionary meetings, it seems." Perhaps she preferred a husband who had brains for something else beside theaters and operas, remarked another girl. Mr. Remington is a noble man, and brilliant besides. It would go far toward reconciling one to an ungenial lot if it were shared with such a person. Yes, indeed, it makes quite a difference whether a handsome young minister who can get loud calls to rich churches is thrown into your lot, 
giggled an empty-headed young fellow. She might as well do her duties with a good grace. A minister's wife has to give herself up to all these things, and she won't be popular, came from another. Anybody would think, to hear you talk, said a plain-faced girl, with a positive ring in her voice, that you were all heathen instead of church members. I have heard of people, young and beautiful, and rich besides, who gave themselves up to Christian work for this one reason, that they loved the Lord and wanted to serve Him. They believed this world was simply a school in which to prepare for another. I think Mrs. Remington is such a person. Sure enough, a young man said in a tone half ironical and half earnest, if there is another world, that is why things seem queer sometimes. It would be really funny if there wasn't a solemn side to it, to see how some Christians act. They profess to believe that their chief business is to serve God, and that when we go out of this world we open our eyes in the next one, which is the beginning of eternity, and yet many of them make religion a little side issue. I tell you I believe there will be a terrible awakening when some people awake in the next world. They insult the Lord as they would not dare insult a fellow creature. In my opinion, there isn't any halfway business about this matter. Do you suppose men and women, who are mad for money, or who spend their whole time in dressing, eating and drinking, dancing and card-playing, and dawdling, are going, as soon as they close their eyes in death, to wake to a long eternity of praising God? I don't believe it. The last speaker familiarly known as Bob Trent, was a gay young fellow, given to jokes and witticisms to such a degree that everybody expected to laugh every time he opened his mouth. His listeners, who were most of them professed Christians, stared in amazement at such talk from him. Evidently this was no joke. His face was positively troubled. One of the most shallow of the girls tried to break the spell that had fallen upon the group by breaking into a merry laugh and asking, what has come over Bob? But the attempt was a failure. There was a constrained silence until somebody proposed a song, and they started for the music room. On the way, Alec Palmer confided to Elsie Chilton that if poor Bob ever did become a Christian, he would surely be a fanatic, for it was out of just such ill-balanced fellows that they made them. Elsie made no reply. She was thinking of Bob's words. Truly, it was strange that people went on as they did if they believed that at any moment they might step into the next world. She would not like to go, she thought, that very minute. She did not feel ready enough. And then, in those few seconds, this half-hearted Christian pressed nearer to the master, even touched the hem of his garment, so changing her whole life. But they were calling upon her to sing. Mr. Palmer made the selection and she sang a wild ditty about an elfin knight, which was much applauded. They pleaded for another, and yielding to an impulse that she could scarcely resist, Elsie sang, to a sweet, low accompaniment, the verses she had often sang for her grandmother. It lies about us like a cloud, that world we cannot see, but the swift closing of an eye may bring us there to be. Then that strange hush fell again upon the listeners, even the most persistent talkers ceased, and the company gathered from every room into that one, eager to catch every note of sweetness. I wish you would give us such music oftener, instead of so much fold the roll a tired-looking businessman remarked. But the musical critics sneered a little, privately, and cast meaning glances at one another. Alec Palmer frowned and wondered within himself what possessed everybody tonight— 
he hinted afterward to Elsie that there were more cheerful themes for songs than dying, and she replied, It is strange, as Bob Trent said, when we are only going to stay a few years in this world, and ages on ages in the other, one would think we would like to know about it. Everybody doesn't dislike to hear about the other world, Alec. My grandmother loved those songs. And then the young man murmured something about it being very well for old people who were just through with life. How do you know but you are just through with it? she asked. You may be going to another world tonight, for anything you certainly know. And it is not old people only who feel so. Mrs. Remington feels about dying just as my grandmother does. She never speaks of it in a gloomy way. Mrs. Remington, the young man said, with an impatient drawing down of his eyebrows. It is strange that one like you will allow two narrow country-bred young people to get such an influence over you. You are mistaken entirely, Alec. Mrs. Remington has never lived out of a large city except a few months, and Mr. Remington spent seven years of his life in New York City. I don't know what you mean by narrow. They are both of them extremely well-educated, and Father says Mr. Remington is one of the finest scholars for his age that he has ever met. Others joined them, then, and the talk was interrupted. But Elsie, while she kept up a gay conversation, was conscious that Alec Palmer's words had jarred her. She did not like to think that they, too, were not in harmony. Was he changed, or was she? The truth was that Elsie Chilton was strongly influenced by Mrs. Remington, more so than she was aware. They had been mutually attracted from the first— during the arranging of the house, Elsie was often called in to consult in matters of taste, which ended in her being quite at home there, scarcely a day passing that she did not run in upon them. It was a novel experience to Elsie to find a friend nearly her own age, who sympathized with many of her tastes, and yet whose pure character and sweet dignity compelled her highest respect. The girl was unconsciously raising her standards— not so much from anything that was said to her as from observing two people who lived on an unusually high plane. She began to be more critical of her music. It must be more elevated in tone. The novel she had read a short time ago she now cast aside without questioning, as trashy, and gradually a taste was awakened for the best thoughts of great minds, so that she really enjoyed reading and talking over what she had once thought dry and devoid of interest. By degrees, too, as she watched these busy workers, her own life began to seem aimless. Mrs. Remington, she said one day, I'm growing ashamed of myself. I live just for my own pleasures. I don't know that I ever did anything to help anybody. Help me, then, this very day, said that lady. Go to missionary meeting with me. I never go to such meetings. I could not open my lips in one, if it would save my life. How could I possibly help you if I went? I have to lead the meeting, and the singing is not good. Most of the ladies sing in a timid way. I have to do it nearly all myself sometimes. It would help immensely to have you there. Your voice would carry them right along. Do go, please. Yes, I can sing, if that is all. But that's not working. To be sure, it is working in a most effective way. If we can make a missionary meeting so attractive that people will come out— they will be sure to be interested finally. I am delighted that you will go. Now, you are to preside at the organ, leading the singing, and sing a solo beside, Mrs. Remington said, eagerly, turning over her music in search of a certain piece. Oh, 
I can't sing from Greenland's icy mountains, said Elsie. No, you shall not. We can sing that ourselves. Here is one for you, though, one of my favorites. Listen. And Mrs. Remington sang the first verse. There is a green hill far away, without a city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. That is lovely, but it is not a missionary piece, said Elsie, as her eyes glanced over the next verse. It is all missionary, dear. Don't you know part of the work has to be done for our own poor faithless selves who stay at home? One never feels so much like helping to save others as when his own heart has been made soft by a look into the dying, loving Lord. These words are very tender and sweet, I think. After that it came about that Elsie Chilton's solos were an attractive feature of the missionary meetings. As she sang, her own heart was often stirred with a longing for something she had not. "'It is so easy and pleasant for you to do good with that wonderful voice of yours,' the minister's wife said to Elsie one day. "'Do you know the next thing that needs you very much? It's our children's temperance band. They sing in a nasal tone, and they drag, and my voice is not powerful enough to control so many.' You will not say no, will you? And so the clear young voice rang out in the temperance band, infusing into it new life and spirit. Without her knowledge of how it had come about, Elsie Chilton found herself being changed from a frivolous idler into a busy, interested worker. Her friends thought the change was due to a sort of magnetic influence which Mrs. Remington exercised over her, but she herself recognized something deeper and stronger even the Spirit of God transforming her being. When her face had become a familiar object in the different benevolent societies, people looked on and wondered, remarking, There is a good deal in that butterfly girl after all. There were two persons who, looking on, were not pleased. One was Mr. Alec Palmer. The other was Elsie's stepmother. As long as Mrs. Remington's influence had been exerted in an intellectual way only, Mrs. Chilton was not disturbed. Anything that assisted to culture had her entire approval. It was in its shallow sense that she used the word. She had no idea of the broader and deeper meaning. Whatever would enable one to show off well and make a display in some line was to be cultivated. She was herself a member of a high literary club, and she talked learnedly of heredity, natural selection, etc. She was, most of all, a thorough woman of the world, filled with ambitious schemes for herself and others. She had long ago laid her plans that Elsie should marry Alec Palmer. It was an alliance to be desired. He was wealthy and cultured, and belonged to one of the best families. Elsie, once settled in life, would be well out of the way when her own young daughter should come into society. If Elsie married into much wealth, she would have need of less from her father. Mrs. Chilton did not tell these things out, she did not even urge Mr. Palmer on Elsie's attention. She had too much tact to spoil affairs in that way. But she had managed that they should be much together, and without seeming to do so, had been an important factor in hastening the glad day when she could announce the engagement to her friends. And Elsie Chilton, as she was a few months ago, viewing life as one long summer in which to laugh and sing and dance, gave her promise that June day with no more serious thoughts concerning it than had the butterflies circling about her head. Of course she would accept so brilliant an offer. There could be but one answer to that. And when her heart, asserting its rights, propounded perplexing questions, she declared, 
Certainly I am fond of him. Why should I not be? Having once decided the question, her loyal, affectionate nature would take matters into its own hands, and at once enthrone him in her heart as wisest and best of mankind. Elsie was out one evening when Mr. Palmer called, but Mrs. Chilton received him warmly. They were excellent friends, and the young man was disposed to be quite confidential with her. He admired her exceedingly, the graceful, gracious woman, never jarring one by eccentricities or extremes. He liked to talk with her because she did not differ from him. She administered flattery in such a subtle, delightful way that he always came away from a visit with her, feeling exceedingly well pleased with Alec Palmer. Elsie used to be like her, he told himself with a sigh, but a strange change is coming over her. I suppose your daughter is worshipping at the shrine of her patron saints this evening, he said, as he seated himself with a disappointed air. Why, what in the world do you mean, Alec? Mrs. Chilton asked in surprise. Pardon me, he said, but I suppose you know of her great admiration for Mr. and Mrs. Remington. They seem to be drawing her into all sorts of vagaries. I should not know her for the same person. Yes, Mrs. Chilton said, with a troubled air. I do regret her intimacy with Mrs. Remington. A minister's wife, of course, must live differently from others, but the idea of her trying to induce a society young lady to go into such extremes is preposterous. I have not said much to Elsie, lest opposition should strengthen her in her course. I think she will tire of it all. I am rather doubtful of that, Mr. Palmer said. She is pretty far gone. The other night, at the Merediths, she sang a hymn when she was encored. Is that possible? Mrs. Chilton looked shocked. Oh, yes. And her talk to me was extremely visionary. Of late she seems to have no time for her friends. She has to attend a temperance class, or an industrial school, or something of that sort. And actually she told me the other night she feared it was wrong to dance. Of course I knew where she got it. The egotism of people who lay down laws of conduct which condemn all who do not agree with them is astonishing. Those Remingtons hold most obnoxious views on every subject. I am sorry such a narrow, bigoted man is our pastor. Elsie is becoming spoiled, Mrs. Chilton. I fear she will be on a public platform yet, speaking for temperance like Miss Redpath. If there is a person I abhor, it is a so-called strong-minded woman, especially those who are clamoring for the ballot. They seem so unrefined, so destitute of all that makes womanhood charming. I agree with you thoroughly, but Elsie would never go to such lengths. Her father would not allow it. Did it ever occur to you, Mrs. Chilton, that your daughter has quite a strong will of her own? It has crossed my mind occasionally, she said, laughing. All the Chiltons have strong wills, but Elsie's is, as yet, in subjection to her father. Mrs. Chilton began to feel that her stepdaughter's prospects were in jeopardy. She had never seen Alec Palmer in such a state of excitement. He considered excitement extremely vulgar when manifested by others, so she hastened to soothe him. She diverted his mind from the subject by showing him some rare pieces of pottery, and gradually drew him on to talk of himself. His temperament, his gifts, his poems, which he sometimes wrote. Mingling with all the talk was that delicate flattery pervading it like a fragrance, and when Alec Palmer's attention could once be concentrated on himself, he forgot everything else even fair Elsie Chilton. End of chapter 16